What are our dollars doing right this minute? Every single one of us needs to think about our purchases, our investments, our banks, our insurance companies, and everything that we do that can influence money. Because at the other end of that money, a lot of people and places are suffering pretty severely. Ignoring that is wrong. Good evening. I'd just like to start by acknowledging the Boowurrung and the Woiwurrung peoples on whose unceded lands we meet tonight and pay my respects to Elders past, present and emerging and welcome any Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people who may be with us tonight. Hello, my name is Bronwyn Johnson. I'm the Director of Climarts Art Plus Climate Equals Change 2019 Festival and the Executive Director of Climart. Last weekend at the Tarawara Museum of Art, in partnership with the festival, the public program Conversations on Country took place. The afternoon featured members of the Wurundjeri community as well as leading health academic and author Kerry Arabina, a descendant of the Miriam people of the Torres Strait. Kerry asked all of us living on this land we know as Australia to actively participate in caring for country by adopting an Indigenous animal or a plant as a personal totem and then to study it, learn about its place in the planet's ecology and create habitat for it. The conversation discussed Indigenous people's philosophic traditions with scientific and ethical understandings of contemporary thought to create new understandings of what Kerry terms our universal indigeneity and our place in living systems on this, our only planet. In closing out many important conversations held during the afternoon, Kerry noted that by adopting a personal totem, this would not only be an act of practical kindness, but a true act of reconciliation. I encourage you all to pick a totem. In my own family, the echidna reigns supreme. On behalf of Climart's Ambassador, Nobel Laureate Peter Doherty, and the Climart Acting Chair, Marielle Sony, and Board, my colleague Catriona, staff and volunteers, presented in association with the Ian Potter Museum of Art at the University of Melbourne. Climart's Art Plus Climate Equals Change 2019 is a socially engaged festival of ideas, exhibitions and events. Presenting over 30 curated exhibitions at leading museums and galleries across Melbourne and regional Victoria, the 2019 festival considers ideas and concepts around art and activism, community engagement, energy transition and accelerated action on climate change. I particularly wish to welcome and most sincerely thank participating artists, actors, policy experts, scientists, curators, staff and directors of museums and galleries, many of you are here tonight. I thank you all for your generosity and commitment to action on climate change. Underpinning this festival is our principal partner, Bank Australia. I'm delighted to welcome our guests from Bank Australia here tonight. From the very outset, you readily understood Climart's mission to create a cultural response to climate change by engaging the arts and scientific communities together. We're enormously grateful, indeed proud, to have such an outstanding ethical corporation in Bank Australia partnering with us. 
I'd now like to welcome Fiona Nixon, Head of Strategy and Communications, to say a few words. Thank you very much, Bronwyn. And I would also just like to start by acknowledging that we are meeting on the unceded lands of the traditional owners of this land and pay my respects to their elders past, present and emerging. Back Australia is really proud to be associated with Art Plus Climate Equals Change for the third time this year. We know that to inspire change and conversation in our society, we often need more than just facts and statistics. And that's why we think this festival is so vitally important to the cultural life of, of Melbourne and the rest of Australia, and also our political debate that is um, so desperately needed at the moment. We think that by inviting people to see the issues associated with climate change through different artistic lenses, you know, we hope it, that people can connect to this crisis on a personal level and an emotional level and then use that to actually demand accelerated action. At Bank Australia, we've been trying to start a conversation with progressive Australians and we're asking them to ask themselves one really simple but important question. Is my money doing good or is it causing harm to people and places? Our money has power, no matter how much of it we have. And we can channel it into doing good with intent, but we can also channel it into causing harm without even realising it. What our banks do with the money that we put in our everyday accounts really matters, and it has a really big impact on the world. You know, the money that you put into your account doesn't sit there waiting for you to take it out. Your bank is using that money to invest it in um, industries and to other people that you have no idea you know, where it might be going. Or maybe you do, maybe you've already asked that question. So we want people to ask that question and then we want to help them make a positive um, choice and to use their money to create the positive change that this planet and all the beings that live on it really, really need. So you've already seen our ad, and I hope it resonated with you. Um, we were using it to try and prompt this conversation around the country, and so far we've been getting a really amazing response. Um, so thank you, and I really hope you enjoy tonight and get a chance to see some of the other amazing works at the festival this year. Thank you. So here we are. It's worth remembering that in its latest report, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, the IPC, warns that we do have 12 years to act to limit global warming to no more than 1.5 degrees Celsius. Everyone understands that even at 1.5, there's massive climate impacts. But in Australia, bushfire, flood, cyclones and droughts are currently ravaging our country like never before. Nine of Australia's 10 warmest years on record have occurred since 2005. Australia's emissions are tracking at the highest on record. Australia is not on track to meet its Paris commitments. The climate emergency has arrived and is happening now. But how do we make sense of the impact of global warming? How do we understand what is happening around us and act to limit the worst ravages of climate change? What is the role of the artist and indeed the museum and our trusted institutions in these very challenging times as we face the climate emergency? Which brings me to our keynote speakers. US-based Becker Economopoulos and Jason Jones are the co-founders of the Natural History Museum and Not an Alternative, a collective that works at the intersection of art, activism and theory. Tonight, Becker will present the lecture component of the keynote and Jason will then facilitate questions from the floor. 
As co-founders of the Natural History Museum, their work takes the form of a travelling pop-up museum that highlights the socio-political forces that shape nature, yet are excluded from traditional natural history and science museums. The Natural History Museum collaborates with artists, curators, community groups, scientists, museum professionals to create new narratives about our shared history and future with the goal of educating the public, influencing public opinion and inspiring collective action. Becker and Jason have worked with many institutions, including at PS1 MoMA in New York, the Carnegie Museum of Natural History, Queen's Museum, Brooklyn Museum, the Tate Modern, the Victoria and Albert Museum, amongst many, many more. Their agency, Not An Alternative, works to connect movements to museums and museums to movements, fostering a growing coalition of museum workers, activist scientists and communities. In tonight's keynote, Museums and Activism, Slaying the Zombie Myth of Institutional Neutrality, Becker will explore how the Natural History Museum leverages the symbolic and infrastructural power of museums to transform them into vital infrastructures for environmental progress, champions of science for the common good, and advocates for a just and sustainable future. Please welcome Becker Ekonanopoulos. Hello. Um, so I too would like to begin by acknowledging that we are on unceded First Nations land and pay my respects to elders past, present, and emerging. So we are with Not An Alternative. It's a collective that works at the intersection of art, activism, and critical theory formed in 2003. So we come from various backgrounds artists, activists, scholars, and our mission is to affect popular understandings of events, symbols, and history. For many, many years, we were working on issues based in New York City relating to spatial politics, housing, homelessness, gentrification. And it was more recently in 2014 that we launched our first long-term, ongoing, full-time project, the Natural History Museum which is a registered museum with the American Alliance of Museums. We started it as a sort of Trojan horse strategy to get inside the museum sector to transform it from within. Why museums? Well, museums in the United States see more visitors annually than sporting events and theme parks combined. They are a top three family destination. And in a time of extreme polarization and mistrust in institutions, poll after poll shows that they are among the most trusted sources of information in society. And they are also, in the US, a $51 billion industry, which is as big as video games. This is a, a, an incredible amount of cultural capital. And science and natural history museums in particular mediate our understandings of nature and culture and our role in the world. They train us what and how to see. In many ways, museums are a sort of apparatus of shared values. They're a collection of objects and agents that together establish a perspective. And the question is, is the perspective on nature one that understands it as something to chop up and sell off to the highest bidder? Or is it nature as a commons for all of us to steward for generations to come? There is an active and very ongoing debate in the museum field now about the future of museums. Are they shrines to the past? Are they hubs of engagement for the present? Are they shapers of the future? 
And as we begin to feel the catastrophic effects of climate change, do science and natural history museums face an imperative to become agents of change? It's our position that as popular culture institutions operating at scale, museums can and must produce meaningful shifts in society's behaviors, attitudes, policies, and laws with regard to environmental and social justice. So we started off in our phase one, fake it till you make it, investing our very first grant, no idea if we would ever get another, entirely into the material infrastructure that would make us believable as a museum. And this is our inaugural exhibition at the Queen's Museum in the fall of 2014, which was timed to coincide with the People's Climate March, um, one of the uh, largest, um, perhaps the largest climate march in, in our country. Is it in the world? In the world. Thank you, Miranda. You should go see her talk tomorrow. So our grand opening, in many ways, was sort of a curtain raiser for the historical and theoretical framework that informs our perspective as a museum. And we brought together artists and scientists through panels, and um, the question for us was, all right, not a whole lot of funding here. How do we make ourselves believable as a museum? We took pictures inside other museums, put them in light boxes, and wrote an arty essay about exhibiting the gaze, um, and that passed. So it functioned in many ways as a sort of stage set for the programming that took place with climate scientists, historians, anthropologists, climate justice activists, also, artists, uh, sort of a nod to the legacy of institutional critique, very big in the 80s and 90s, artists like Hans Hakka and Fred Wilson and Andrea Frazier um, joining us for this programming as well. We were thinking in this programming about some of the barriers or obstacles to museums reevaluating their roles in a time of profound change. What is holding them back? And why are funders of climate denial sitting in leadership positions in science institutions. This seemed like a contradiction that is so great, we could drive a, a tractor trailer through it. Should fossil fuel companies like Exxon sponsor exhibits? Museums, like scientists, have historically maintained a position characterized by museologist Robert Jaynes as authoritative neutrality. This is a widely held position that affirms that we must protect our neutrality lest we fall prey to bias, trendiness, or special interest groups. But as museums increasingly depend on private sector sponsorship, these claims to neutrality take on a sort of ideological bent. After all, what are corporations if not special interest groups? Neutrality is a political category, one that hides from view the alternatives against which it is defined. And this claim to authoritative neutrality is dangerous precisely because it prevents institutions from reevaluating their roles in the climate crisis. So at a time when powerful lobbies representing the interests of fossil fuel industry seek not only to influence public policy, but by the next election, we can only see neutrality as another word for resignation. 
We teamed up with dozens of the world's top scientists and Nobel laureates to release a letter urging science and natural history museums to cut all ties to fossil fuel interests. That's how we kicked off the project with what we call strategic polarization in the sector, splitting the museum, splitting the sector between those who are willing to take a stand and those who claim neutrality. This, in 20 years of doing activism, was perhaps the most viral thing I'd ever been a part of. In a few days, there were hundreds of news hits around the world in art, in culture, in science, in higher education, in philanthropy beats. And it really seemed to kick off some sector-wide soul-searching within museums. We singled out the example in this letter of David Koch, who is a top funder of climate-denying organizations, and I uh, talked about how sponsorships, while museums suggest there is a firewall between board members and uh, programming or funders and events, they, they do have an effect at every level. When a sponsor is known for his anti-science practices, that sponsor circumscribes the very horizon of the possible, not through coercion, but through the invisible threat of withdrawal. So we launched a petition to get David Koch off the board and got pushback from museums saying we would do that if we were an activist organization, but we're neutral, so we can't. And we, in response, invoked the American Alliance of Museums Code of Ethics, which states, it is incumbent upon museums to be resources for humankind and in all their activities to foster an informed appreciation of the rich and diverse worlds we have inherited. It is also incumbent upon them to preserve that inheritance for posterity. And so what does that look like? Is it that you're collecting all the things that are rapidly going extinct in the world and putting them within your four walls? Or are you marshalling the resources and infrastructure of your institution to protect the living universe? We're not asking museums to be political. We're asking them to be ethical and relevant in a time of change. So we wrote an op-ed for The Guardian, and it was shared more than 11,000 times in one week. We beat Chris Rock's op-ed that week. So we beat pop culture, if anyone remembers Chris Rock. Um, and then did a video series with luminaries from various disciplines, ranging from Anuradha Mittal and Vandana Shiva to Naomi Klein and um, Gavin Grindon, curator in, in the London V&A. And we reached out to the American Alliance of Museums when we learned that their annual convention was to take place and it would bring 7,000 museum professionals from around the world largely from the United States, and asked, could we park our bus maybe outside the convention center and set up the tent and screen these videos about the future of museums, asking the question, what is the, the museum of the future? And they got back to us and they said, I'm sorry, no, you really can't. There's no room, it's a taxi cab stand, but we do have room on the convention floor. We can't afford that. <laughs> no, it's cool give you a $15,000 spot for 600 bucks, and it was nine times larger than the American Museum of Natural Histories, and right next to theirs. And we set up our bus on the floor and a mobile exhibit. And in that exhibit, we recreated dioramas and installations from the American Museum of Natural History, but this time included previously excluded sociopolitical context. 
This one asks our climate, whose politics? So in this case, um, it's a redo of a diorama that um, was found in the museum in its 2009 climate change exhibition, which actually was pretty good. We, th we thought that was great. It de depicts a polar bear atop an uh, ice cap with the detritus of urban waste. Right. already sort of an embedded political commentary. We just thought it needed to go one step further. We included a Coke Industries oil pipeline in our diorama. My favorite thing about this is we had just finished install and we were hanging out in the hotel bar and ended up talking to exhibit designers who work on the American Museum of Natural History's traveling exhibits. And it turns out that they were currently traveling this show. And when we mentioned our diorama to them, actually Jason pulled out his phone and showed this picture and they were like, yeah, yeah, we did that. And then they zoomed out and they're like, wait a second, that, that's not ours. We also set up the screenings called Notes from the Anthropocene with various films and also commercials from the fossil fuel industry. And after doing that, we thought about how there are many other creative collectives and artist-led collectives around the world, peer institutions, if you will, that were likewise calling on their museums and cultural institutions to drop fossil fuel sponsors. And that while we, in our respective countries, had been successful at getting a lot of media attention, um, it had not been packaged as a nascent but rapidly growing international movement, which it was. And so on the occasion of the Paris Climate Summit a few years ago, which is where we met Bronwyn and Guy, we brought these various collectives together for our first ever face-to-face -to, -face to launch the fossil-free culture movement or hashtag museum liberation movement. And these are groups like Liberate Tate in the UK that was in that wake of the BP oil spill in the Gulf, urging their museums to drop BP as a sponsor through very beautiful, unauthorized interventions that leverage the vocabulary of the institution and the exhibits on display, recontextualizing them. Same with BP or Not BP, which is a collective of theater actors that were calling on the Royal Shakespeare Company to drop BP as a sponsor. And they would go up immediately before performances and kind of storm, storm the stage and have these scripted um, mini plays they would do, holding up the program with the BP logo. Out, damn logo, out. We convened around a table thinking about our shared aesthetic references and how we can echo and iterate upon one another's work and also plant the coming out party for the fossil free culture movement, which was an intervention at the Louvre that took place both inside and outside. When we came back to the US, we partnered with 350.org and other organizations to launch the museum divestment movement. Looking at the champions in the sector that were already doing some good work on the environment and asking them to be the vanguard, to take it a step further, getting the fossils out of their investment funds. Right out the gate, uh, just a few hours after launching this campaign, the first institution stepped up to the plate. The California Academy of Sciences out of San Francisco announced, their CEO announced via a blog post that not only were they divesting, they were implementing an ethical funding policy and getting rid of 
oil deeds and titles on lands that have been donated. And I think that this is a sort of interesting example because you know, we started a museum to get inside this sector that's very different from shaking a fist on the outside, which in many ways we believed kind of reifies some sort of power dynamic where we, have, we don't have the power and these guys up there do. Whereas we see these institutions as porous and that they're ours. They're not just the people who take the paycheck. They're the visitors. They're, these are shared spaces. Um, and in this case of Cal Academy stepping up, it didn't hurt that one of our collective's co-founders worked at the California Academy of Sciences, had been a part of our Facebook private Facebook group where we were developing this project over the course of a year, and he kept uh, speaking up in staff meetings and going to office hours visits with the director for many, many months before we publicly launched, so kind of primed the pump. To me, that illustrates the necessity of a strategic interplay between inside and outside strategies for social change to take place, and really led us to thinking in many ways about this as a sort of union organizing project to identify our champions on the inside and think about how we can build collective power. The dominoes started to fall. In the last few years, we've gotten nine museums to either divest from fossil fuels or drop a sponsor, ranging from the Field Museum, Phipps, London Science Museum, the American Museum of Natural History slashed their investments in fossil fuels down to 2%. Lamely doesn't call it divestment. And then we got David Koch off the board. Five hundred fifty-two thousand petition signatures later, um, and in many ways, we had been really thinking of, of him as a muse and a foil, not actually imagining that we would be getting him off the board, but thinking that this was an opportunity to point to systemic issues within the sector. But it had such deep, great resonance. Um, and ultimately was successful. And what I love about the media coverage about it is it doesn't say climate activists kick, got David Koch off the board. It says David Koch apparently defeated in a battle with scientists. So again, like who are the constituencies that have influence within and over these institutions and how do you split those institutions? Because they're not monolithic. While we'd had a lot of success getting fossil fuel interests out of science and nature museums, we saw so much more potential in the role that museums could play beyond divesting. What would it look like to revise museum practice, exhibits, practices of display, public programs, to equip the public with the stories and the tools that they need to understand the rapidly changing world and shape it for the common good? So we researched what stories were being communicated in museums, who's doing a good job, who's really on the wrong side of the fence. A Houston-based art museum reached out to us with um, interest in collaborating on an exhibit, and we took that opportunity then to partner with Tejas, which stands for Texas Environmental Justice Advocacy Services. It's a local community group in Houston on the front lines of the petrochemical hub. We developed an exhibition together, co-hosted monthly toxic tours of East Houston's petrochemical plants and refineries. We conducted extensive air quality monitoring tests in collaboration with scientists from Texas State University. 
So this work was situated at the confluence of scientific research, environmental justice, and critical museum practice, aiming to model the museum of the future, one that works to mobilize a collective response to the challenges of the Anthropocene. So we set up a series of billboards throughout Houston as a sort of teaser, and one of the things that we zeroed in on this exhibition, true to the form of uh, institutional critique, was um, taking a look at the Houston Museum of Natural Sciences and its energy halls, sponsored by a who's who of oil and gas companies, asking the question, is this a museum or a PR front for the fossil fuel industry? It claims neutrality, yet this is really, in many ways, propaganda. So I'm going to show you a video about that. Is the Houston Museum of Natural Sciences a museum or a PR front for the fossil fuel industry? That's the central question of mining the Houston Museum of Natural Sciences, an investigation by the Natural History Museum. This is our exhibition. We're a mobile and pop-up natural history museum that looks at the fossil fuel ecosystem including museums of science and natural history that mediate our understandings of fossil fuels, energy, and the environment. Here we are in the belly of the beast, one of the world's largest petrochemical hubs, where the Houston Museum of Natural Sciences is sponsored by a who's who of oil and gas companies, many of them headquartered here in Houston. So in this exhibition, we're taking a look at some of the installations and dioramas inside the Houston Museum of Natural Sciences. So for instance, this diorama is a replica of one found in the museum's Texas Coastal Ecology Wing. It's an almost exact replica. In fact, the photographic backdrop is a photograph of the Houston Museum's diorama. But we included a little bit more, almost as if we sort of stepped back from the frame to get a, a broader shot, taking a look at what they include and also what isn't found inside the museum. What's missing is any of these socio-political, socio-cultural, economic impacts of fossil fuel exploration and extraction. In the Houston Museum of Natural Sciences, there's a sponsorship wall where the size of the name corresponds to the size of the contribution. The more money they give, the larger their name is on the wall. On ours, the larger their CO2 or carbon emissions, the larger the name. One of the sponsorship perks to um, donors that contribute $25,000 or more to the museum is that um, their employees get priority training scheduling to become volunteer docents of the museum's energy hall. So here is um, an ExxonMobil employee who is a volunteer docent giving tours of the Weiss Energy Hall to school kids and field trips. The song that you hear playing here is one that plays in a cartoon video in the energy hall. Many kids come to visit the museum and take these guided tours on field trips. Also, local area kids, if they grow up within two miles of the Houston Ship Channel where industry is concentrated, have a 56% greater likelihood of getting childhood leukemia than kids who grow up elsewhere. 
This is Operation Dinosaur. We're teaming up with Tejas, a local environmental justice group, to put out dozens of these dinosaurs with air quality monitoring badges. These are the same that workers wear inside refineries and chemical plants to monitor what's in the air that they're breathing. Um, we're recreating the conditions of a study conducted in 2005 by the Houston Chronicle where they put up dozens of these badges in the fence line communities in the east end of Houston. So now a little more than 10 years later, um, we're asking the same questions, trying to generate data um, to understand what's in the air that people are breathing. These are things that are usually used for workers and they wear them while they're working on site the facility for 24 hours or whatever period they're looking at and that tells the company whether the worker is being exposed to unsafe levels so these were designed to be right there on the site and what the study of Houston uh, Chronicles research showed was that these levels were unsafe in neighborhoods you know away from the sites away from the property that okay, Tejas does a lot of toxic the Houston Chronicle, after this uh, or during this exhibit, ran um, to our surprise a full-page editorial about the exhibit in the first paragraph and used that as a springboard to get into air pollution and environmental justice concerns in the city and the need for government to regulate. And they also ran a front-page story about climate science censorship in the Houston Museum. So that felt successful to some degree, but we started to think about our positionality. Are we inside or outside the sector? That's, that exhibition is part of what I would call our shit-disturbing phase. And can we continue to work within this sector if we're doing these sort of middle-finger-style exhibitions? In some ways, it felt like the Houston Museum was beyond redemption, uh, and we just couldn't help ourselves. But also, I feel like that exhibit started to tease the work that we really wanted to ramp up, which is what does it look like for a museum to be an ally to communities on the front lines of climate change and to communities that are leading movements globally to safeguard our collective future. So that was the sort of positionality struggle, and we decided, you know, it, we're, we're starting to get this access and develop relationships. Let's really double down on that. So that was phase three, organizing from within. And in this case, we went to every museum convention we could get our hands on, setting up booths, using this as the backdrop for dozens and dozens and hundreds of conversations with museum curators and educators and decision makers to understand the culture that we were aiming to intervene upon, to understand the barriers to them taking action, to understand their aspirations and points of pain. Also joined the Association of Science Museum Directors. And I'll say one thing, this is also where we learned going to different panels, looking at the programs, talking to people, the code switching that was necessary to do the network weaving we were seeking to do. It's there that we also discerned that museums were kind of locked in this space of talking about climate change as carbon molecules in the atmosphere. Just the facts, ma'am. Whereas we understand that climate change is a social justice issue. It's already here. 
what does our response to climate change look like? This is where, in some ways, we enact a version of what Don Hughes, who's the vice president of exhibitions at the Monterey Bay Aquarium, calls moral propaganda, which is seeking to, quote, design space and to present content that moves people in a specific social political direction. So museums matter, but not merely as content providers. As collective institutions, they can play an important role in educating the public about the unpredictable and overlapping effects of climate change, but also in advocating for an equitable, sustainable, and just future. But how are you going to do that? You need to get to the top. So I joined the Association of Science Museum Directors when I learned one day through random online sleuthing that it's a thing. And all you got to do is fill out this form and send in a $50 check, and you're a member. And that qualifies you to go to the annual retreats with 30, 40 other science and natural history museum directors across North America. So this is me going to my first ASMD retreat in Vancouver. We do tours of different museums and the behind the scenes, and then we go out drinking. So I captioned this uh, natural history museum directors in their native habitat. But I'm now about four years into going to these retreats, and it's been invaluable in getting to understand um, who, who are the folks that are willing to take risks and push the envelope, who are the ones that we could potentially work with. You know, it's not that big of a sector, so it's not that hard to show up and kind of affect it. Right. Then Standing Rock happened, and it captured the attention of people around the world. And it was like history was unfolding in front of us again, but maybe this time the ending could be different if we stepped up. And we saw with the destruction of the sacred sites by the pipeline, the Dakota Access Pipeline Company, bulldozing sacred sites there, an opportunity potentially to mobilize those naysayers that say, we're neutral, we can't and invoking the George Lakoff, don't think of an elephant book, right? Rather than arguing, no, you're not neutral. Yes, I am, this like sort of quicksand whirlpool thing that gets us nowhere. Just mobilize them, right? And in this case, the destruction of sacred sites, of cultural heritage, when these institutions are invested in historic preservation and also in indigenous cultures and ways of knowing, while these institutions come from fraught colonial pasts and, in some cases, presence, right? We also learned that there are good people on the inside who feel tremendously guilty about how their collections were acquired, how the narratives in these museums were shaped, and the, many museums are, are taking initiatives to integrate the contemporary Native voice into museums and revamp their cultural halls and act in more accountable ways. So there are a lot of woke archaeologists, historians, museum educators, and so on. So we reached out to them. And in just a few days, had about 1,400 museum directors, archaeologists, anthropologists, historians signed on to a solidarity letter in support of the Standing Rock Sioux Tribe and denouncing the destruction of their cultural heritage. 
This letter was covered by outlets around the world, noting how unusual it was for these professions who don't typically engage in advocacy to raise their voices. And while it wasn't a permanent victory, President Obama in December of that year decided not to grant the final easement for the pipeline development. Trump ultimately reversed that. But when it seemed like a victory, it was John Eagle Sr., the Standing Rock Sioux Tribe's tribal historic preservation officer, who said, renewed attention is now being paid to the National Historic Preservation Act. And in this resistance, we have gained valuable and powerful allies. Um, and spoke explicitly about this letter and the potential for future collaborations. Then Trump was elected, and we'd been working with scientists who were part of the AGU, the American Geophysical Union, which is the largest scientific association in the world for climate and earth scientists. And they had been working to get Exxon sponsorship out of the AGU and thought at their upcoming annual convention, uh, which took place in December, immediately after the election, that that would be the time to escalate that Exxon campaign. Um, but in light of a very changed country and context, um, we decided that there was a larger message to project um, and that the AGU kind of functioned as a world stage for us to call for, um, for people to stand up for science. And for this, it was an opportunity for us to experiment again with don't think of an elephant, just mobilize them. Can we get scientists off the bench engaging in the public sphere? This is a demonstration we organized at the, on the occasion of the AGU and got 500 climate and earth scientists in white lab coats with signs and images that ran around the world. This is like nerd achievement unlocked. We got George Takei, Star Trek, to tweet it. He said this is a prime example of how to resist in the era of Trump. We watch out for each other. Bill McKibben, when scientists protest, their picket signs have footnotes. <laughs> and here we were experimenting with science activism, you know, thinking about you know, in our research, where does this myth of neutrality come from? As if there were such a thing as neutrality, as if knowledge weren't situated, as if there isn't inherently any kind of bias when you communicate um, to the public. Uh, but also, does neutrality even serve us, right? Historian Howard Zinn says that you can't be neutral on a moving train, and the fossil fuel industry is driving this train off the cliff. Our children are set to inherit a much more dangerous world than the one that we grew up in. So simply by sitting still, you're heading in that direction and you're complicit. So how do we engage science institutions around messaging that is decidedly not neutral, but aspirational and can open doors rather than a can of worms? So here we are thinking about scientists as sort of these heroic figures. Splitting science. There is a very problematic history to science. It can be wielded for ill or for good, right? But in this case, scientists speaking truth to power, protecting our communities, pursuing truth, and saving the world. On the occasion of the AAAS convention, that's the American Academy for the Advancement of Science in Boston, um, a few months later, this was the first convention after the inauguration, 
And we did it again with another rally, but this time 3,000 scientists and supporters signed up and the New York Times live streamed it. So I'm gonna show you a clip. In both the AGU rally and in this one, we made a point to have the communications go beyond scientists' self-preservation from a, the uh, uh, cuts on cuts to funding or to their jobs, and instead put them shoulder to shoulder with communities, uh, community leaders who are um, going to be hit hardest by the war on science. And here is one. Speaker is Yvette Arellano from Tejas, Texas Environmental Justice Advocacy Services in he East Houston. The energy capital of the nation, the second. It houses the second largest petrochemical complex in the world. And alongside these industries, you have frontline communities, environmental justice communities, suffering on a daily basis. Know that science is the last line of defense between the interest and corporate greed of the industry that is oil, that is gas, that is chemical. You are the last line of defense that we have. Know that you are real life heroes. That our partnerships like that with the Union of Concerned Scientists has helped our survival. That when you have an elementary school next to a sulfuric acid plant, and that plant has an impact zone of 25 miles, and at any point, it will not only take out an elementary school, but the entire community. These are the daily lives of those on the marginalized front lines of environmental justice communities. I am happy to stand and to chant with you today because for so long, science has been silent and today, science is not silent and will not be from this point forward. We stand with you, your frontline communities, the marginalized, those on the outskirts and who have been there, welcome. You are amongst friends. Right. We became co-organizers of the March for Science and directors of the social media team. So really pushing for the messaging to go beyond yay curiosity or yay facts and evidence to science that stands with communities, the scientists that protect the people and places we love. Because it's not all science that's under attack. It's particular kinds of science that threaten the interests of the few. The March for Science was pretty amazing. We um, developed visuals to sort of reinforce those messaging frames um, for the front of the march, but it took place in all six continents from Nigeria to the Arctic and Antarctic. There was an underwater march for science. And there was even a penguin march for science at the Monterey Bay Aquarium. And this really marked a turning point for us in going to the American Alliance of Museums convention after the March for Science, there was a breakfast for the Association of Science Museum Directors, and there was one agenda item for discussion. And it was framed as many of us are beginning to rethink our positions on advocacy in light of the March for Science. Let's debrief. And universally, 
people who said that their institutions played some role in the March for Science had a positive experience and wanted to do more of that. And it really felt like I was able to come out of the closet here and now start to have much more topical and pressing and political conversations with museum leaders, which really set the stage for new kinds of working collaborations. The director of the Carnegie Museum of Natural History in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, reached out and said, we'd love to do something with you. He is the chair of the Natural History Committee of ICOM, the International Council of Museums, and was hosting the first ever ICOM conference on museums and the Anthropocene. We spoke by phone about what we might do there, and those conversations snowballed from could you speak on a panel to could you do a 2,000-square-foot exhibition? And um, that is where we reached out to the Lummi Nation, a native nation in the West Coast, Washington State, Northwest, that are in many ways at ground zero for fossil fuel expansion projects coming from Canada and the tar sands and North Dakota has to get exported somehow for markets in Asia, and they're trying to take it out the West Coast through these deep water ports where Lummi Nation is based. Um, the world's largest proposed coal export terminal was to be sited on their ancestral lands and waters where a 9,000-year-old village was sited. Um, and Lummi uh, and other native nations in the region have been beating and blocking project after project after project. It's like the one place where we are winning. And one of the reasons for that, we believe, is the way in which they're engaging in activism, leveraging culture and tradition and history and symbols in such a powerful and galvanizing way. So for the past six years, they've organized a series of totem pole journeys, carving different totem poles and taking them to communities that are facing similar threats as a means of generating media attention and building alliances. At these totem pole journey events that went across the country, they um, brought out farmers and ranchers, scientists, environmentalists, faith-based communities, and invited people to lay hands on the pole, and they talk about it as a sort of battery that gets charged from place to place. As people lay hands on it, they give it energy, and it gives them energy in turn. And they credit the success of the defeat of many of these projects with the totem pole journeys. We saw an opportunity to develop an exhibition in the middle of coal and fracking country, Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, around the totem pole journeys, where the director said, you know, I can't really talk about fossil fuels here. Half my board got wealthy off of them. But I can host a totem pole that's a monument to resistance to fossil fuels. So that was also a Trojan horse that could work for all stakeholders and be a win-win-win. Here's a video about that exhibit. Over the past six years, the Lummi Nation have been connecting communities on the front lines of the environmental crisis drawing lines of solidarity in the fight against unsustainable fossil fuel development projects. This fall, they drove the struggle they've been leading into the heart of one of the country's most important museums. Led by a totem pole carved by master carver Jewel James, the Lummi brought with them a formidable delegation of tribal leaders. 
This was a special and unique opportunity where a major museum was offered as a platform to celebrate the role Native people play as protectors of the earth. We love to be an ally of the totem pole journey and want to contribute to raising awareness and building alliances. There are, are not enough directors who understand the moment and the narrative shift that's needed about indigenous cultures, about indigenous peoples, and how we are big players in the struggle to save Mother Earth. Philomi and their allies set up an exhibit that was aimed at setting a new standard for other museums to follow. 200 museum directors and decision makers were in attendance for the opening of the exhibit that coincided with an international museum conference. This is a, a brand new exhibit, it's called Quahoy, and you can see the many pictures and the many journeys that we have traveled over the past five years to bring education to communities on the effects of fossil fuel. Visitors learned firsthand about the important role the telling of history plays in shaping culture and public perception. This here is so culturally relevant. It means that we're being heard. Our voices are being heard like they should be for the first time in a long time. And I believe it's very clear what this totem's message is. It's the message of us rising. For ceremony, a connection was re-established to the spirit of the land and to the history of the place, stretching back to a time long before the museum was even built. And this resurgence of culture, gathering people in a place like this, where the waters meet, this is a very powerful place where water ruled the area. That's what nourished this tree before it became this magic piece. And I won't say art because it's a story. It's history. Each of you have laid your hands on it, and you've given it your power to continue that story. That's what the totem poles do. That story will continue because you're listening. The totem pole journey has inspired so many to draw a line against the forces pushing us toward extinction. Now, the Lummi has extended the invitation to museums to join them on the right side of history. I'm going to be gone a long time from this earth, and this will still be standing saying, we did something. And that's what these museums are about. In a world of crisis and on the brink of some major global collapse, museums are and need to be agents for change. How are our future generations going to look at and analyze the decisions that we made that put us in a predicament that we're going to be in the future? This will represent that we did something, that we stood for something, that we wanted to stop it, that we said no to industry, and we said no to money, and we said yes to earth and air and water. That's what we did. a traveling exhibition, the, the pole is still on its journey, and the idea was in bringing it into the museum, it isn't an object to be captured and preserved, um, but rather uh, something to be engaged with, to invite visitors to lay hands on the pole and to invite the museum to be an ally on the journey, and bringing that battery that got charged into the institution to charge the rest of the objects within with contemporary socio-political context. 
and making it about the totem pole journey and placing it on the trailer, not just the totem pole. Uh, these are uh, what we called story poles. So we went with Alumni for a couple of weeks to visit different communities that had been a part of the totem pole journeys to invite those communities to curate objects and to interpret those objects. So you can put headphones on and listen to the stories about the objects that they curated, which tell us something about climate justice and injustice, resistance and resilience. In this case, this is uh, an object curated by Elizabeth Yanchi, a leader from Yakima Nation, which is coal ash from the trains that pass through the Pacific Northwest. And the ash contaminates the Columbia River where her family fishes and swims but some very uplifting <laughs> objects and stories as well. Each place that we take the totem pole, each exhibit is unique and site-specific. So in this case, the totem pole went to New Jersey where we did an exhibition at the Watershed Center, a science center, in collaboration with Princeton Art Museum and Princeton Environmental Institute, um, where we actually raised the pole and worked with a local native nation in New Jersey, the Ramapo Lenape Nation, that have been fighting the proposed Pilgrim Pipeline I don't know who names these things. And this exhibition was called Quelhoi, Many Struggles, One Front. So bringing together the Lummi and their struggles with the Ramapo Lenape Nation and Pilgrim Pipeline campaign, and then the scientists at Princeton and the Watershed Institution uh, Institute who were fighting the proposed Penn East Pipeline all together to build alliances and power and get science in line as allies with the totem pole journey. This is our most recent exhibition currently on display at the Florida Museum of Natural History. So it features the most recent totem carved by Lummi Nation in the shape of a killer whale, or orca, which is a sacred species to the Lummi. Their name for the killer whale is Quelhomishtan, which means the people who live under the sea. And they understand the killer whales as their ancestors that are now critically endangered. And I don't know if you saw the headlines last year, but this is a pod of 73 resident whales in the Salish Sea, the waters of British Columbia and Washington State and Oregon, down to California, who travel. And they had their first successful, or they had their first childbirth in several years last year, but it was unsuccessful. Within 30 minutes, the calf died, and the mother ended up pushing her on her nose in a tour of mourning, uh, unprecedented, not for one day, not for two, but for 17 days she swam um, with the body of her calf. And that many read as a sign of these whales calling out to us, not just to protect them, but to, as the canary in the coal mine proverbial, like, to call for us to protect ourselves as well. So Whale People Protectors of the Sea is this exhibition, and next year it will be touring Pacific Northwest venues. I want to go back to this photo from the Paris Climate Summit, which is why we're here tonight, meeting climate folks there. At the Louvre, during this intervention or performance, the Indigenous Environmental Network ran up and laid down, you'll notice at the bottom, a red line, this red cloth. And that was a symbol that was being used by native-led climate justice movements globally. 
red line to signify many things, like there is a bright red line we cannot cross of 350 parts per million or 1.5 degrees. But also, we are Mother Earth's red line. We are the last line of defense. And it was really in working with the Lummi that from that point forward in, in producing collaborative, sanctioned, authorized exhibitions inside museums, that we started to shift from the black line, the death that was a part of the museum, its fossil fuel sponsors, critique, to a red line, using it as a way of symbolizing the life that's not part of capitalism. It's in nature. It's wild. It's not captured. And that red line, that life runs through everything, including the museum. Yes, it's a colonial institution, but it has a life beyond its history. And it's a life that's contained both within the workers and within the objects. The late Sioux scholar Vine Deloria Jr. wrote, the primary difference between the Western and indigenous ways of life is that Indians experience and relate to a living universe whereas Western people reduce all things, living or not, to objects. The implications of this are immense. If you see the world around you as a collection of objects for you to manipulate and exploit, you will inevitably destroy the world while you are attempting to control it. Not only that, but by perceiving the world as lifeless, you rob yourself of the richness, beauty, and wisdom to be found by participating in its larger design. Museums are implicated in the process of objectification described by Deloria, rendering objects neutral, decontextualized. But they also have the power to connect their collections to the living universe, to bring the past to bear on the present, to marshal their resources and infrastructure and symbolic and narrative power to both lift up the voices and stories of the people who are struggling to protect the living universe for the future and to activate objects not as static artifacts of capitalist consumer culture, but as monuments that refuse capture, that represent a challenge, that live and speak to us in the now. Only then can we rise to the challenges of the Anthropocene, preserving, as the American Alliance of Museums would say, the rich and diverse worlds we have inherited for posterity. Thank you. Collective. This show is produced by Hear Media, a boutique audio agency in Narm, Melbourne. To learn more and get in touch, head to hearmedia.studio. That's H E R E media.studio. Media.